The New Testament reading is Matthew 26, verses 36 through 55. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me this one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But that how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that father, Son, and Holy Spirit, open our eyes to the beauty of Jesus, our high priest and king. May we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus our Lord, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. So over the past several months, Pastor Will and our elder Chris have been leading us through Matthew's gospel. In this book, we've seen Jesus heal the blind, the lame, and the deaf. He's cleansed lepers. He's cast out demons and raised the dead. Now, you may be here this morning, and maybe you're not a Christian, and when you hear those things, you are skeptical, right? Anybody in our age is skeptical of claims of miracles or of, of, of healings like this. This is before our technological age. And I, I'm not going to be able to address directly your skepticism, maybe in the way you would expect. Because I think for Jesus to really affect us, we actually have to find Jesus desirable before we find him believable. Right? We actually have to want what he's offering. Because if you think the stories of Raising people from the dead and healing the blind are difficult to swallow. Jesus does one better. Back in chapter 9, Jesus looked at a man who was paralyzed and said, your sins are forgiven. So to the original audience hearing that, they were shocked. 
And Matthew records that shock for us. They were shocked because they knew only God could forgive sins. In the Bible, sins are those things that we do which violate God's purposes for our own flourishing. They go against what God has called us to be when we follow our own desires. And so that violation against God and against his purposes for us could only be fulfilled by God. It could only be forgiven by God. And that's what Jesus is claiming to do. And so he gets, by by claiming to be God, he gets on the wrong side of the Jewish religious authorities and civil leaders. At the same time, he's been preaching good news. And this good news is that God's kingdom is now here and come. God's kingdom is the place where God reigns, where peace reigns. And not only that, Jesus is saying that he's the one by whom the kingdom is coming. Because he's the one that can offer forgiveness of sins. Now, what the religious leaders wanted, and the civil leaders, the Jewish leaders wanted, is somebody who could overthrow the Roman authorities. These were the oppressors. These were the people holding them back. And they looked to certain uh, of their scriptures in the Old Testament as the grounds for, we're, we're looking for someone who will save us. And so they were looking for a promised savior, but they weren't looking for Jesus. And if they couldn't have revolution, then they didn't want repentance. And Jesus doesn't play their game. He calls out their hypocrisy and how they make other people follow man-made traditions, but forsake justice and mercy. So while Jesus had healed the sick and preached repentance and offered forgiveness, he has been encountering increasing resistance throughout the book. And that resistance comes to a head in our passage today in chapter 26. As Will preached last week, the leaders have plotted to arrest and execute Jesus. And now one of Jesus' closest followers, a man named Judas, has decided to swap sides. He's going to sell Jesus to the authorities. None of this takes Jesus by surprise. In fact, Jesus is fully aware of the plot. For months, possibly years, Jesus has been telling his disciples that he has to die. And that in order for the forgiveness that he offers to become real, he has to be the one to stand in their place and stand in as their sacrifice. The events that we're reading in this chapter take place during the Feast of Passover. And in this festival, the Jews remembered how God saved them out of the land of Egypt. They, remember this, they, they commemorate this festival with a special supper. At that supper, a lamb is killed and its blood is sprinkled over the doorway, just as they had done in the land of Egypt when they were slaves. And that's the, that's the meal that Jesus and his disciples have just eaten, a Passover supper. But if you pay attention to the text, there's no lamb there. Jesus tells his disciples that he is the lamb. He will be the sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. And the breaking of Jesus' body and the shedding of his blood will do something new. So let's go back to the passage we just heard in Matthew chapter 26. And we're going to consider two uh, aspects of this. In verses 36 through 46, we're going to watch the priest pray. And in verses 47 through 56, 56, we're going to see the king betrayed. Verses 36 and 38 set the scene. We read in verse 36, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. 
And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Gethsemane means oil press. So it was a place where olives were grown, where there is now you can still see parts of the Mount of Olives. Really, really old olive trees, possibly dating back to the time of Christ growing. And so they would take those olives and put them in a press and tromp them down, and they would pull out olive oil. This, this garden lies across a valley that separates Jerusalem and the temple on one side and the Mount of Olives on the other. And that's the Kidron Valley. And so tonight after supper, they've exited Jerusalem, they've walked through this valley, they've climbed the side of the Mount of Olives, and now they've come to a place to pray. And this is a really logical place for Jesus to go because it was a familiar place. It was a place that he'd taken his disciples to many times. So when he needs to pray, he goes to this place. And then after he's taken 12 of his closest followers with him, he takes three in particular. These three are fishermen from Galilee. They spent the last three years wandering from Judea to Galilee in the company of Jesus. One of them, Peter, is brash quick to speak, and often slow to learn. The other two, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, Jesus nicknamed the sons of thunder. So you can kind of guess what their personality was like. But these hardened fishermen are the people who have become closest to Jesus. And it's those people, those three, that he draws with him even further into the garden. As we saw last week during that supper, Jesus said to one of his, that one of his disciples would betray him. And all the disciples began sorrowful, became sorrowful and asked, Is it I, Lord? Now the weight of all this has come back to Jesus. And it's his turn to be sorrowful and deeply troubled. He tells Peter, James, and John this. And he tells them that his sorrow is so great, it feels like death is on him. Because Jesus is faced with what he knows will come. His own undeserved, cruel death. So he asked these three, his closest friends, to remain here and watch with me. So let's see how the high priest prays. In verse 39, we read, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And again in verse 42, again for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father... If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Do you remember what Jesus said all the way back in Matthew chapter 6 when he was teaching his disciples how to pray? He said, you're not out to pray to gain recognition for yourself because God knows what you need. In chapter 6, verse 5, we read, And when you pray, be not like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So that's what Jesus taught his disciples to do. That's how he prays here in this passage. Jesus prays in secret. He goes away by himself and pours his heart out to God. 
Jesus prays simply and directly, right? He, he knows that what is about to happen is going to lead to his death. And we know that unlike any of us, Jesus is completely innocent. You know, we've all done things that go against God's instructions for our life of how we should flourish. And we live with the consequences of those every day. But Jesus lived a life that was perfect, that was without sin. And so here, he's facing death, and he just lays this out before his father. You know, this is really interesting to see how this contrasts with someone who may be considered one of the greatest uh, teachers and most influential in history. The Greek philosopher Socrates, uh, we still are, are dealing with his thought today. And the more I read and study, the more I'm, I'm impressed by how Socrates and his disciple Plato and his disciple Aristotle are still asking the questions that we are, like, people are wrestling with, even if they don't know that, even now. But when Socrates was faced with death, he faced death very differently than Jesus. Socrates was condemned to death for the teaching that he'd given to the young people in Athens. But Socrates was rather cheerful. Because for Socrates, to die meant to be released from the body. So for a true Greek philosopher, what you wanted to be in touch with was the really absolute ideas. And as Socrates and his students knew, the things that, as we try to uh, you know, piece together these things and we look at the world around us, everything is, gets clouded by and distorted by our senses. And so for Socrates, the only way you could really tap into truth and beauty and goodness was with your mind. And the body was a barrier to that. So Socrates is cheerful and has to explain his cheerfulness before death, before he's given a cup of hemlock poison to drink and die. But Jesus here is sorrowful. And I think it tells us something about how Jesus sees his own life. Because unlike Socrates... For Jesus, the body isn't something that is merely a prison. And in fact, Jesus has told his disciples that one day after he dies, he will get a new body. He'll be resurrected. And this is radically different than what was, than what was accepted in the Greek world at the time. So we see that Jesus is sorrowful because he's going to depart the body. But he lays his heart out in prayer to his father. We also see that Jesus submits to the Father's will because he knows God will recognize him in his prayer. Compare, like, remember, like Chris pointed out, that when Jesus tells us in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus knows that in order for the kingdom to come, he has to die. And he's willing then to set aside his own will and his own desire for the sake of of the will of his Father. And he does that willingly and of his own accord. So we've seen how Jesus prays. Let's look at how Jesus responds to his disciples. Jesus goes off and prays three times, and each time he returns, he finds his three friends asleep. Now, I've thought about this, and I've thought about the times when I was under a lot of emotional stress, and thought, how is it that I often respond 
whether at work or at home with my wife or with my kids. And I think I tend to go in one of two extremes. If I'm under a lot of stress and uh, make a request of someone and they fail, I either get angry because I'm like, why can't you do this? Or I get despairing because it's like every time, every time we try to do this, it, it doesn't work. But that's not how Jesus responds. First, Jesus just simply gets their attention with a, with a question. So you could not watch with me with one hour. And he warns his disciples of the danger ahead. Watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. And yet Jesus acknowledges that the conflict they find themselves in is something that they're going to wrestle with. He says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, his disciples deeply want to obey Christ. But their body is still affected by being tired and the stress of the day. Their minds are burdened down with the sorrows. And sometimes it's all you can do to stay awake, and sometimes you can't. And they fall asleep. And so we see Jesus here coming to them in gentleness, like a good father would with his children. He doesn't scold, and he doesn't despair. But he shows us a kind of graciousness that often in our lives we find missing. So let's think briefly, why is this good news for us? It's good news for us because Jesus is someone we can relate to. Jesus is someone who knows what it is to be at your wit's end. He's someone who knows what it is to go under extreme sorrow. He knows what it is even to face death. In the book of Hebrews, later on in the Bible, the author takes this and says, what does this make Jesus for us? He said, it makes us our high priest. He becomes the one who can intercede for us and bring our needs before God. The writer said, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become merciful and a faithful high priest in the servants of God, so that he could make propitiation for the sins of the people. He himself has suffered when tempted, and he is able to help those who are being tempted. So we see in this passage that Jesus becomes our high priest. He's the one that can intercede for us when we are in like situation. So let's look now at how Jesus, the king, is betrayed. As we read in verse 47, while Jesus was still speaking to his disciples, Judas came, who's one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and spears, or swords and clubs, and the chief priests and the elders of the people. Do you see these weapons described here? The guys who would be carrying swords would probably be Roman soldiers who had been assigned to the temple security. And the people with clubs would have been ordinary Jewish citizens. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. Do you remember what Will said last week? We never read Judas addressing Christ as Lord. He only addresses Christ as teacher. And then he kisses him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. And they came and laid hands on him and seized him. This is a really terrible event in the life of Jesus. Because he has invested in Judas for the past three or so years. 
Judas has sat at Jesus' feet and he's heard him teach. He's seen him feed more than 5,000 people and he's partaken of that food himself. Jesus, Judas himself has also experienced God's power working through him because Judas was one of the ones sent out to heal and to preach the gospel too. And so Judas's betrayal runs deep. But Jesus tells us in this passage that this betrayal has a purpose and that it couldn't be otherwise. Jesus says twice here in the verses that follow, how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it should be so? Jesus could stop it all and call on angels to deliver him, but he doesn't because he says this follows God's will. So let's think back to the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, and think how and in what way does this particular passage fulfill that? You may recall in Zechariah 13, where the prophet says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. We see that happening when Jesus is captured, his disciples will flee. Or you may remember that in Isaiah 53, the the passage, one of the several chapters in the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah presents the Savior as one who would suffer. But I think there's also another component here that we might have missed. Remember back to the story of David and how he was betrayed by Absalom? This would be really familiar to the first century readers because David's life was sort of the TV show everybody knew. It was sort of like you know, Downton Abbey, like it happened a few years ago, but at the time everybody knew it was going on, was just a flavor of maybe Game of Thrones because everybody knew the details of the life of David and everybody wanted a king that would look like David. And so when David's son Absalom rebels, he asked to flee Jerusalem. And we read in 1 Samuel, uh, or 2 Samuel chapter 15 that when he flees, he takes his family and his followers out the gates of, of Jerusalem and down the Kidron Valley. And as he flees, he flees over the Mount of Olives. And when he is fleeing, one of his uh, counselors comes to him as he's going up the side of the Mount of Olives. And we read in 2 Samuel 15, 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his, barefoot with his head uncovered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Ahithophel was David's trusted counselor, the one he would lean on for advice, the one who partook of food at his table. And I think that's what David is remembering in Psalm 41 that we heard earlier this morning. He's thinking back about what it was like to be betrayed by his counselor Ahithophel. And he says, he was the guy who, even my close friend and whom I trusted, who ate my bread, he has lifted up his heel against me. So when all this is happening to Jesus, he wants his disciples to realize that this is not some accident. It's not some unforeseen plot twist, but it's fulfilling the Old Testament patterns and predictions about Christ. So how is this good news for us? Well, throughout the book, Matthew has presented Jesus as the new David, the new king. Chris mentioned this in his sermon uh, a few weeks ago. 
the people are longing for a king, and they want a king like David. And Jesus is the one who fulfills that. Now, you may object, right? We live in a democracy, and kings are out since about 1776 in the United States, right? Uh, we had tea parties. We had declarations. We've, we've done our thing. We've had wars. No more kings. But it's interesting to watch every election cycle. We still want leaders, and we still want leaders to bring justice and mercy. And somehow, every election cycle, they never quite live up to what we hoped. And I think that points to a desire in our lives where we want justice and mercy. We want someone to come back to be, well, a king, to be the one who can bring about peace and flourishing. And that's what we see here. But unlike so many of our political leaders, this king that we see here in Jesus is relatable. Because I think many of us have been betrayed, right? Many of us have been betrayed, whether at work by a colleague, or perhaps by one of our parents, or perhaps by one of our children. We want a leader who knows what it's like to be on this side of betrayal. And not only that, Jesus goes one step further because he's not just sympathetic to us, but he offers forgiveness to us. Because in fact, we have betrayed others. And sometimes that guilt of our own betrayal lies heavy on us. And through Jesus' life and death and resurrection, he now offers forgiveness to us. So what we've seen this morning is, is a priest who prays, someone we can empathize with. And we've seen a king who is betrayed, who can offer us forgiveness. So how might we live this out as we go forward? Really practically. What is your first thought when you wake up in the morning? Okay? The alarm clock goes off. You wake up. What comes to your mind? Is it your checklist you have to complete? Is it awaiting some message from a friend? Is it looking to see if something was liked on social media? Those things that we're looking for for satisfaction kind of tell us something about what we're looking for in life. They tell us who we're looking for for comfort and peace. They tell us who is kind of king in our life, and maybe that's our to-do list. They tell us who we want to be mediating our vision of ourselves to other people. So what we see here in this passage is that we can go to Jesus as our priest and high, high, our high priest and our high king because he knows what it's like to live here. So maybe one practice you could do, very simply, to start living out this, is as soon as you wake up and turn off your alarm clock, before you flip on your phone or start mentally reviewing your task list, kneel before the king, kneel at your bedside, and pray simply and directly to God. Lay before him your heart's concerns and your desire. And 
tell him what it is that's bothering you. And receive then the blessing and the peace of Christ as you go throughout your day. You know, maybe if you want to think about these practices further and like how you could start living out that kind of thing in your life, consider attending Rachel's classes on Wednesday night about spiritual practices. Those are practices that help us reorient our vision and our desires away from these things that are constantly pulling on us and back to God as our priest and our, and our king. So let's, let's think about that. Let's think about what it is that we truly desire and pray to God now that we could learn to see Christ as truly desirable. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this story in the life of Jesus. I pray that you would use this story to show us what is desirable about Jesus, to show us how he is our sympathetic priest and our sympathetic king. We thank you, Father, that we can go before Jesus in confidence and boldness because of this. For Christ's sake, amen.